Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Alex Cutler. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. We are so tremendously excited to be joined today by Alex Cutler, the head of development at Pandasaurus Games and designer of games like Expansity, Team 3, and Before There Were Stars. On the show today, we'll be talking about development, the sort of process that comes after design in the creation of a game. We'll delve into what that is, decisions around developing games, try to pick Alex's brain on how to develop interesting and fun decisions in games. We'll use The Wolves, a recent hot game from Pandasaurus as a conversational case study. And then in the back half of the show, we'll also make a special exciting announcement uh, tied to development, tied to maybe game design, uh, and then use that as a case study as well. And then talk generally about development too. I think this will be a really fun episode that sort of pulls in more of the uh, board game design world and how the games we often talk about the show come into being. Uh, So how are you both doing today, Jake and Alex? Well, I'm doing great. Really excited to have Alex on the show. Really excited for this conversation. I think for me, as more of the design lay person in the room, um, I often hear like, this this game had great development or like, I wish this game had more development. And I feel like a lot of times that's just like thrown around. So I'm just excited to see like what that means from some experts. And I think that'll really help my understanding of this topic. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here as well. Development is sort of one of those uh, mystery box kind of phrases to your point where it's it gets a lot of blame and a lot of credit sometimes but it's uh it's just a part of the process like anything else between when a game is just an idea to when it's a product on a shelf so definitely excited to talk about it more with y'all and alex i want to talk about your bona fides here up front a little bit because we came to know each other at first actually as design design friends we met and regularly went to a local design group and i think that even at the very beginning of when we first met each other you were sort of invaluable in your ability to look at a design, pick apart what it was doing and what it was trying to do and find and suggest ways that the games could do that better. And I think I really think of that as being sort of what the core role of development is. And maybe we can pivot into a conversation of that. I said that we'd talk about your bona fides and then I talked about our past. So first, let me say... (laughs) Those are not your bona fides. You've done development <laughs> on games like Umbravia, Skate Summer. Uh, you co-developed That Time You Killed Me by Peter Say Hay- Peter Hayward, the really cool uh, abstract time travel game from Pandasaurus. Uh, Gods Love Dinosaurs. That's another game that is really system sort of driven with interesting relationships between uh, different types of animals on the board. That's really cool. And then games like Skull Canyon Ski Fest and Skate Summer, which are all doing sort of I think unique and interesting things that from a game design perspective that required special handling in maybe a different way than someone who was developing, say, a textbook Euro game that's about point conversion or that sort of thing. Maybe even point salad that we covered last week. So I think you have this ability to tackle complex problems and synthesize what they're trying to do and make them approachable and fun. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I will say of all my bona fides, being your friend is the one I'm most proud of. (laughs) (laughs) I literally just got so warm. Um, Yeah. So I I think um, one thing that I'll say as far as uh, my role at Pandasaurus is in addition to being the head of development, I also do our scouting. Uh, So scouting in the context of board game companies means I'm going to conventions, taking online pitches, seeing games that designers are pitching to Pandasaurus that they want to get signed. So To your point about the interesting types of games that I've worked on, one of the things that I'm really fortunate to get to do in my job is 
be the one on the ground looking for the new games that we sign. So I actually get to sort of pick the games that I'm excited to work on or that I think are doing something interesting, which is just a wonderful synergy with development because, you know, I, I can't speak to how it works at every other company, but I, I can imagine a situation where someone else is signing games that they find interesting and then saying, hey, Alex, you need to work on this thing. Um, sorry that you hate three-hour euros, but here you go, develop <laughs> a three-hour euro. Um, and, you know, it's it's not like it's completely up to me, obviously, but I, I get to kind of be that first line of like, do I think this is something interesting? Do I think this is something worth, you know, Pandasaurus taking a look at? And that means that in practice, I get to work on a lot of games that I'm really, really excited about, uh, which definitely makes my job easier. I just want to say what a cool job. <laughs> Sounds like a ton of fun. I'm incredibly grateful to have this job. I it, It's I had been a designer for about six, seven years. Uh, so I met Brendan, as Brendan said, we were in the same design group. And I, I don't know if you've had a past episode where you kind of like talked about the trials and tribulations of being a journeyman designer, but it's uh, a lot of hustle. It's a lot of going to shows and networking and paying your own way and hoping for maybe getting that contract with that you know, $500 advance or something that doesn't even cover the hotel you stayed in. Uh, there's just not a lot of full-time employment in board games, especially on the creative side. Um, and making the transition from freelance design into a development role basically allows me to do something that I love every day. So I'm just very grateful that I get to, to wake up and work on board games. Yeah, it's so awesome. I think also just at the start of the show, Alex, I want to mention the games that you've designed yourself too, just so people know about those. Uh, I'm sure they will be familiar to some and many. Uh, but so you designed Expansity, which came out in 2018, which is a city building, uh, I would say your most Euro, classic Euro sort of strategy game. Uh, then there's also Team 3, which is a really cool dexterity game about building blocks on a team, building towers of blocks on a team uh, that is so zany and fun. And then you have Before There Were Stars, which is more of a storytelling game. So your games span this wide gamut, uh, which I think makes you probably better equipped than most to just take on a dev project of sort of any game, because even your design background is really varied. Yeah, I like working in a lot of different spaces. I've, I've never felt a, a strong compulsion to kind of make the same game over and over. Um, for better or for worse, because that's definitely a career track that you can have as a designer. Um, but yeah, I appreciate that. That's um, that's something that I get a lot of enjoyment out of is just trying something new, um, yeah. working in a different space than I usually work in. That's awesome. So maybe, Alex, we can pivot to talking about what is development for those who don't know. And I, in laying out the notes, sort of had three key pillars that I could see. And maybe you can tell me if I'm what I'm missing. So I think development is, so it comes after design, right? Someone's designed a game and then you or someone else in a development role steps in to help make the game better. Uh, you'll do work on it after a game's been signed and sort of button it up, get it wrapped in a nice package, clean up the loose ends, but you're working to achieve a fair play space. So I think that in my eyes, I'm using fair, not balanced because some games are intentionally not balanced, uh, but a fair game that everyone is coming at the table, having the intended experience from their seat if it was sort of an asymmetric game or something. Uh, you help to work to ensure that the design space gets fully explored. If there was something about the design that wasn't, uh, there was this untapped potential, maybe you would help the game and the designer tap that and make sure that this cool potential gets explored. And then also you're looking for cleanliness and playability. If there's rough edges, you want to sand them down so this really cool game can become a really viable product. Brendan, that was a really great 
explanation of the question. I was just going to channel full office space and just say, what would you say you do here? (laughs) (laughs) I I would love to go through those points kind of bullet by bullet. And I'll also add in a fourth one to the end, which is um, developing to spec or developing Mm. with product in mind. Cool. You know, a lot of um, a lot of what designers do is sort of they have this free reign to create their idea. Right. And a lot of times as a publisher, you have other considerations. So component count and theme and marketability and player count. And there's a whole bunch of other little factors where, you know, the developer kind of has to be the slightly business minded creative who uh, makes sure that the designer's original vision is something that will actually do well once it comes out. Yeah. Um, so do you want to j- jump up back to the top, the first one you said there? So yeah, let's do it. Talking about a fair play space. And I absolutely agree about what you were saying about not necessarily balanced. I think balance is one of the, that's actually one of the things I was going to mention uh, later on was balance is kind of one of those things that maybe gets overemphasized sometimes. I think you can spend hundreds of play tests playing a game over and over, making sure that every number is perfect. Uh, but if you lose the fun in that journey, then it doesn't matter how mathematically perfect your game is. If players are sitting down, no one's going to appreciate, you know, I'm so glad this card was a two instead of a three that you really made my day, you know, if they're not having fun doing the other things that are going on. Yeah, that's totally. such a great point. Uh, it, if I could just jump in, it really reminds me of something a, a good friend of mine in front of the show, Paul Solomon said about his game design, honey buzz is sort of like, there was a lot of some criticism about like the goals and, and that being like overpowered and, or, you know, not balanced. And he's like, you know, I could show you the math proofs that like prove without a doubt, this is like well-balanced, but like if players don't perceive it as so, then it's not. Yeah. I mean, playing a game is, is inherently kind of an individual experience at the end of the day. Like you're playing with other people, but you've won or lost usually, right? Sometimes you win or lose as a group. Sometimes you're playing a solo game and you're winning or losing by yourself, but your opinions of is a game balanced are really informed by your personal experience. So, um, I've definitely had that situation as well. And I, I know we'll get to it later when we talk about the wolves a little bit of, you know, there's sometimes questions of, is this game exactly balanced or did I lose for some reason that the game, you know, caused me to lose? And uh, there's certainly cases where a game can can have problems or be unbalanced or developers, you know, weren't brought in or didn't do their job right. But um, there's also a lot of just that human element of people are going to have opinions. You know, there, there's no game out there that I'm that nobody thinks is unbalanced. You know what I mean? Like there's, any game out there, no matter how perfectly mathematical, there's going to be somebody who's like, yeah, but I don't really know. I think the game made me lose. Yeah. But that guy drew pocket aces. <laughs> well, I think that that's such an important point, though, because this is such a common development pitfall that I've really had to work hard not when, Alex, we've worked on games together to not fall into, uh, which is outcome bias, which is just the idea that we are so informed by our experience of a game. So, And this falls into the thing with decision spaces, too, right, where you could pick the worst decision that maybe there's a 10% chance of that decision working a 90%. So it's the wrong decision, right? If the other one is a 90% chance, you could win with a 10% chance and then feel really validated in picking that decision, but it's still probably the wrong outcome. And I feel like development wise, you can fall into that pitfall of, oh, the game keeps doing X to me. I'm, I should, I must need to fix it. Not taking into account that it's a small sample size or Maybe my opponent's just really good at creating some specific position. So it's really hard to divorce your own experience and the experience that everyone's having at the table. Yeah. And I think something that is an interesting segue from that point is the value of having a second set of experienced eyes on a game Mm -hmm. design. 
Yeah. So we, we know this, Brendan, from our work on designing games together. Sometimes if you've played a game a dozen, you know, maybe a hundred times in some cases, you you know all the little ins and outs and you, you kind of get into a rut of playing the same way over and over or engaging with the system in the same way. And something that yeah. you think is obvious to you might not be something that's obvious to someone else. And part of the appeal of development just at a baseline is it's someone who knows about games, knows about the systems and how games work but is coming at it from a different angle than you and doesn't have the same history with the design that you do and can maybe just see something that you stared in the face for a hundred playthroughs and, and didn't notice because in your mind, that is the game. And the developer comes in and says, well, what if it wasn't? Yeah. And then it just goes from there. And then oftentimes the, what if it wasn't makes it such a better game, at least in my experience, maybe I've been lucky, but I think that there's so much value potentially to be had. Yeah, well, we... I mean, I think that the hope of every developer is that they don't make the game worse. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, well, I, I feel like I need to jump in here because so we've talked about a lot about balance being not the end-all be-all and, and, and highly subjective. So like what then is, like how do you all define a fair play space? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of what you're doing is seeing the game at its extremes as a developer, or at least that's part of my goal when I'm developing, which is stress testing. It's mm -hmm. making sure that at this player count, or if a player tries this strategy really hard, it doesn't break the game and it pushes at the edges of what that system allows without ruining the core of the experience. So um, a lot of my development is testing at two player, three player, four player, five player, trying this rule at this player count, trying that rule at a different player count, seeing which ones work and which ones don't, and really trying to make sure that if there is a way to break the game, that we've sort of poked at the edges of that. Um, gotcha. That's I, helpful. I think, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what? I didn't mean to stop the No, no, no. Maybe, Alex, as we're sort of, you talked about, so that kind of covers, I think, cleanliness and playability to some extent, too. Um, where if you're stress testing, maybe there's rules that work really well at certain player counts, but aren't working at other player counts or making the experience of setting up a game really messy. And I feel like, correct me if I'm on track here, that some of your job as a developer is sort of value judgments around this rule is really good and it works amazingly at this player count, but is it in service to the product and the game overall, or is it too much of a burden to have? Yeah, a hundred percent. One of the main things I'm trying to do in my development process is trim off vestigial rules, mm. things that maybe served a purpose at one point and are grandfathered into the, the rule stock just because at some point it was serving a purpose and now it's not. And to my earlier point, maybe the designer's not seeing that as clearly because there's, oh, of course that's the rule for this particular situation. Um, but as a developer, I'm like, well, does it have to be? Is there some other way we can simulate that or can we just get rid of it? Um, I think one of the biggest traps or pitfalls that designers can fall into and it's you know usually inexperienced designers but it can be professional designers as well is having a rule that solves a problem right one particular edge case and so you have this extra extra piece of thing that players need to memorize or familiarize themselves with and it might very well make the game better because it's solving a problem but is there something else we can change elsewhere in the game uh, at the core of the systems or mechanisms that can achieve the same effect without having those little kind of, you know, niggling kind of rules that just float around the edges and, and bite at the game and, and can really suck the fun out of it sometimes when you have to remember something that only happens once a game or maybe never in a game or, uh, 
you know, you play the game wrong and then you're like, oh, it's because there was this little rule on page seven in a footnote that we didn't, didn't notice. Yeah. Then those rules. I was just going to say like it, just hearing you say that just strikes me like what a challenging iterative process development must truly be. Right. Cause then you go back to the beginning, you're like, okay, well, we'll just tweak this little core thing. And of course that could, you know, open up other possible problems, right. As you, as you play through at all the different player counts and everything. So, you know, it, it feels like almost like you're trying to manage this like butterfly effect. Yeah. 100%. And you know, when you're designing a game, there's often times where you'll have tried something obvious and it doesn't work for X, Y, Z reasons. So one of the things I like to do in development is is work pretty closely with the designers that we talk to and play the game with them as check-ins at various points throughout the process. Because oftentimes, you know, obviously I hope the finished product isn't worse than it started as, but there'll be oftentimes in development where I make a change and play the game. I'm like, oh, well, that completely broke. You know, it's yeah. it's not a constant uphill process it's a two steps forward one step back kind of kind of process so a lot of times i like to check in with the designers and say hey did you try this and if so why didn't it work because that'll save me you know five play tests of banging my head against a wall if it's something that they can just say like oh of course that's not going to work because this reason i feel like you've really framed what being a when you have your development hat developer hat on alex it feels like you framed it as being like the chief question asker of the team of like trying to ensure that what is there is there for a good reason that it's solid and that it should be there and also sort of making sure that it's fun, which is kind of cool. What do you say is the difference when you're sort of sit, when you sit down to try to be a designer, put your designer hat on versus like maybe even on the same game versus putting your development hat on and trying to be a developer? Yeah. So I think design and development are obviously two sides of the same coin and it's a really blurry line where one stops and the other starts. Yeah, you know, I, I think there are plenty of games where the designer is also the developer in practice, at least for the last, you know, however many playtests. Um, development as a concept, I guess, is very malleable in that way. Um, from a purely career-focused way, I guess the biggest defining difference is um, if you think of design kind of as a beach where you can just make whatever sandcastles you want and and do whatever you want, and you've got this whole giant land to explore. Development is a little bit more of a sandbox. So I, I still get to play in the sand. I still get to change things and move things around. But there's walls. There's edges of, of what I can do, what I can't do. There's business considerations. So it, it's definitely more of a um, enclosed play space. But you're still doing the creative things that are core and inherent to design. Yeah. Let's get into some of that like developing with product in mind that you mentioned bring about uh, brendan has mentioned things on this podcast before that totally blow my mind it's like oh well you want to have like a you know 54 card deck or whatever you know because like that'll fit squarely on two sheets of printing cardstock it's just you know it's stuff like that that i think people who listen to this podcast who have maybe like dipped their toes into design or like have an idea and are just like prototyping off of you know construction paper at home probably are never thinking about and that strikes me as something that like a, a developer with experience you know a professional experience in the hobby could really help bring to a game to make it more publishable yeah i mean i think for anyone in the audience who is an aspiring designer who's working on a project definitely getting your game in front of other designers or someone who's had a published game or, or worked with a publisher in any capacity is an incredibly useful part of the process because to your point, there's just things that you might not think about that 
really make a big difference in terms of the likelihood of your game getting signed by someone or picked up. Um, as an example of something that comes up a lot in development um, is player count. So uh, Umbravia and uh, The Wolves were both games that when they came across my desk did not have two player modes. And being able to play a game at two players is an incredibly important aspect of bringing a game to market. It's obviously not integral. There's plenty of games that are you know three and up, but um, with I think the notable exception of Catan, there aren't a lot of games that are just three and four only. You know, usually if it starts at three, it goes up to five, six, seven. So for something like Umbravia, it was really important to me to find a way to add in a two-player mode, and uh, for that matter, the Wolves as well, which we'll talk more about in a bit, I think. But you know, for Umbravia, it's a bidding game. It's a bidding bluffing game. Uh, at its core, you're sort of uh, bidding on tile spaces of what's going to come out, and you really there's a psychology to the game's core that was inherent when there's three players that just completely broke if you tried doing the exact same system at two players so one of my missions in development was to come up with a different rule set that allowed the game to do a similar structure with a simulated third player that didn't put too much burden on the players to need to manage that and um, that, that's one of the things that i think I, I do pretty well and I really enjoy in my development process is working on different player count modes and making a game function maybe in a way that the designer didn't originally think it, it might have been able to. So to jump back to your original question about designing with product in mind and what, what sort of things designers might want to look at, player count's a big one. Um, I occasionally will see games come across my desk where it'll be something like, hey, this is a game for exactly three players. And honestly, like no matter how good that game is, that would be a very tough product to sell both to a mass audience and to my bosses in terms of should we sign this game uh, thinking about component counts so like you mentioned with you know uh, how many cards are on a sheet of you know printer paper that that's less of an issue i think than it used to be but it's still something to kind of be mindful of especially for a smaller game um, one thing that's that's weirdly interesting and maybe a little bit counterintuitive in games is it's not actually always appealing from a publisher standpoint for a game to be as component light and, and cheap as possible. Oftentimes what we'll do when we have a lighter card game or something that, hey, this game could you know exist with just 54 cards or we can use a card to be a score tracker or things like that that I'll see when a design comes in. We're actually like, well, okay, but then we'd have to sell it for $10. We'd rather add in you know 20 tokens and give it a better feel on the table and, and spend more money on making it have a nice tactile presence and be able to sell it for $20 MSRP or something like that. So it's it's not always a goal to reduce a game to its, its sort of bare bones, which I, I think designers sometimes think is a selling point or it's something that they they work on, you know, stripping the game down to, hey, this is the simplest way you can do this concept. But, you know, outside of the button shy kind of like, you know, very light card games, um, I think most publishers like to have their games have a little bit more have to them from a why should I buy this product over a different product standpoint. I think that that's Super such interesting. a unique thing about board games too, compared to other forms of media. Uh, books have this a little bit, right? Like a thick book signals to us, this is a heavy experience. There's a lot here. You can play with typesetting and text to change the size of a book. But with games, so much of how a game is published and positioned signals to the players the type of experience. So I feel like even going back to design so much, it's so important to think about what am I signaling to my audience? 
in what I'm putting on the table about the experience that they're going to have. And then how can I scale that up or down to fit the experience that I want them to have? And it's so great to hear, Alex, like from a publishing perspective, you and Pandasaurus are thinking about these things too, because that's how a a good game becomes a good product, which makes it a better game. Audience expectations are a huge part of development, I think. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because it is, you don't want to sell a game that is a three hour Euro that you've somehow managed to distill into a $20 light looking product because someone's going to put that on the table and not get what they were expecting. Right. Yeah. And you just as much don't want to take, you know, Uno and blow it up to a $80 box. Right. Like there's just, there's a certain level of is the experience matching what I think I'm buying when I get this game, because there are a lot of times where a game can be very good, but if it, doesn't have that that synergy in terms of what people think they're going to play with what they're actually playing it can really dampen the experience or put it in front of the the people who are predisposed to not like it as much as its intended audience that's such a good point and i think that's something that i see all the time just in like the general hobby of uh you know criticizing it i think i see it more from like the size of like the big game boxes and then like the play experience being like lighter than people thought what was that big like roman city building game the foundations of rome foundations Foundations of rome Rome. like that's the only thing i heard about that game i mean i've heard a lot of people like enjoyed the play but they're like you know this is a giant you know calyx cube sized box (laughs) bigger than a calyx i think they were selling a copy of that at essen that was like 250 dollars for all the uh all the parts so it's like a 250 dollar game that plays like you know Patchwork. Patchwork. <laughs> yeah. That's a very good game, actually. But yeah, it is it's definitely uh over right. overproduced. But you know, that's also a business strategy sometimes. There there are plenty of companies that their model is uh deluxification, as it were. I'm try- right. I'm trying like, to think, can you think of any examples off the top of your head or either of you of like a really like cheap game that people would criticize for being like heavier than it seems, or maybe those are just lost to the ether because people don't. Innovation is a game that maybe falls into this category. It's a, you know, it's just a deck of cards and the game that is there is much heavier than it seems. I think over time it's found its audience. People know that when they're playing a game of innovation or a Carl Chudik game that fits in a small box, that there's a big experience hiding there. But I could see how initial audience would sort of say, whoa, there's so much more going on here. I, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of these games are like, like people love it, right? Like Race for the yeah. Galaxy, right? It's like, oh, it's like a way bigger game than in the box. But I imagine there are lots of games like Race for the Galaxy, like Innovations that never find that kind of audience because of those first initial plays not meeting expectation. The, the one that jumped to my head immediately when you asked that question was the, uh, the Looney Labs Pyramid uh, system. I forget what the exact name of it is, but it's these little plastic pyramids that have an incredibly deep kind of chess-like variant uh, with like a hundred different versions, but it's, you know, it's like a little $10 set of pyramids or something. Um, and and that one is where like, I think you would sit down and think like, oh, we're going to play this cute little game. And then like two hours later, your brain is on fire. And you're like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, why don't we take this opportunity to sort of pivot to talking about the wolves, Alex? I would, that is a game that Pandasaurus just released at Essen. It's a area control uh, game in which you play as wolves, uh, packs of wolves that are moving throughout the map, trying to uh, basically c- c- incentivize neutral wolves to join your clan. And you're trying, 
you fl- you're the developer you know the game better than i do do you want to talk about the wolves <laughs> yeah, yeah let me... hotness it's really really big right now and i think people are going to be really excited to hear about it and its design background yeah let, let me do let me do the kind of bullet point through of, of what the game's about and its its history and uh I'll, I'll preface this by saying this was actually one of the first games that i scouted uh cool. when i started doing that in my role at Pandasaurus. Um, so it was this and Skate Summer were kind of the first two that I was with on the entire process. So things like Umbervia and Skull Canyon uh, were around before I came in and then I developed them, but I, I wasn't part of like the, the picking process. Um, so it's been really cool for me to work on these two games and, you know, the Wolves, especially with how it's doing right now and seeing kind of where it started as like a little baby wolf pup to where it is now. Uh, that's, that's been really neat. Um, so the wolves, uh, I, I fall into the same, I, I guess I'll say trap that you did of calling it an area control game. And I think that's just kind of the way you have to to bill it because of the way the other games that it's most similar to, but it really isn't an area control game in the traditional sense. So in the game, what you're doing is you've got a pack of wolves, which is growing and moving and uh, shifting around the board throughout the game. And you've got these, uh, multi-hex tiles that are laid out to create this map and you and the other players are moving through the different terrain types with your packs of wolves uh, sending them to different locations to do different things like build dens um, howl at lone wolves to add them to your pack and grow that surrounding prey to hunt it just doing a lot of very thematic wolf things and then three times per the game at different phases of the moon as a calendar advances you're going to score certain regions of the board so depending on which region is scoring and what other things you want to do, you might be contesting a region in a traditional area control sense, or you might be choosing to get your victory points somewhere else by hunting prey or howling at wolves or doing other things on the board that can give you those points. So it, it's a really interesting, it's it's not a sandbox game, but it, it is certainly a game that has various play styles and ways to win. You don't have to engage with the core area control mechanism to have a good time. If you completely ignore it, you'll probably not have as good of a time, but you don't have to go hard on it. Um, the really cool thing about this game that I think when you describe it to someone is the, the thing that re- people really latch on to that's that kind of like mechanical hook is you have tiles in front of you that are double-sided. There's five different terrain types and every tile has a different combination of two terrain types on the front and back. And you as a player also have a double-sided tile of the same terrain type that you're good at. So if I was the desert wolves, I would have a double-sided desert terrain tile and then one of each of the other uh, five combinations. And when you want to take an action, you need to have a certain number of face-up visible faces of that terrain type to be able to take that action in that terrain space. So if I want to move to a forest space, I need to have at least one forest face-up and then I would move my wolves mm. to that space based on a couple of you know factors like pack size and speed, and then flip that tile over, revealing the symbol, the terrain type that's on the other side. Every turn is made up of two actions, so you often have this very puzzly, interesting decision space of what action do I want to take that does something that is useful for me now that also sets up my next action that will do something else different and interesting for me. So you're constantly adapting and reacting to what's on the board, what other players are doing and what's near you in a really interesting way with that action selection mechanism. There's no resource expenditure. There's no cube pushing. It's just, do I have the right faces 
of these tiles to do what I want? And then how can I manipulate my board state to get to what I want? Sounds interesting. Yeah, sounds sounds like it might... I'm like notoriously like not a fan of area control game just because games just because I feel like uh, a lot of times people say politics in a game and I just hear like people whining about like you should go beat up on that person over there. Um, so it sounds like to me uh, a game that's pitched as you know area control elements with a lot of other stuff going on like uh, immediately is more resonant than just like this is straight up wolves fighting for area. Yeah, I feel like it's a very like cliche thing to say as a positive for your game, but it it is true in this case that it's an area control game for people that don't like area control games. <laughs> <laughs> the so we should also say I want to make sure to name the Wolves designers because Alex is the head developer, the lead developer on this game, and then the Wolves is designed by Ashwin Kamath. Ashwin Kamath. Yep. And okay, Clarence and Clarence Simpson. Simpson. Yeah, yep. awesome. And, and then I also had a lot of help from a assistant developer, David Van Drunnen. Uh, cool. I brought them in, and they uh, did a lot of play tests with me and helped me, you know, come at it from like another development minded approach. Yeah. So, huge shout out to David for their work. It sounds like Alex, there's this was a really unique development experience, I bet, because you have this core system of the tiles flipping that control your actions, which is a fairly, to my what I know about of games, it sounds like a pretty unique mechanism that's very interesting. And then all these different mechanisms within the game that that has to interact with, whether it was attracting lone wolves, like you said, or the area control scoring that you mentioned, or the the den. So what was the dev experience like for the wolves? You mentioned a two-player element. And I guess, what were the high points and what were the low points? And what? Yeah, you know? so th- there's a couple things I'll go through. The first was what made this really interesting was this was a game that was designed entirely in table top simulator wow so cool when this was signed and came to us there was no physical version wow and during you know the covid years i, I did most of my development in tabletop simulator um so I'm, I'm used to working in that space and i like working in that space a lot it allows for rapid iteration and the ability to get a wide net for testers um but it was really interesting playing a game that was born there you know it's kind of one of that first generation of hey we're all stuck inside in march of 2020 you all want to make a game on tts kind of uh, things. And uh, one of the really interesting development challenges was making sure that the choices we were making and the things we were doing would translate well when the game existed physically. Uh, th- there's no substitute for getting a game on the table and seeing how it plays and how players interact with it, especially in terms of gauging things like playtime, uh, which is always something you want to make sure is tight and feels good. So that was just really interesting, like taking something that had sort of never been physical and possibly could have completely broken when it made that jump, but luckily didn't and and translated just fine. Um, So that was really interesting. Um, Another thing that I would say was one of the biggest challenges from a development perspective is a lot of the systems of the game, to your point, Brendan, about the the way that the weird action selection mechanism interacts with things. uh, A lot of those systems are so tightly connected that very small tweaks caused very big unintended consequences. One of the ones that I wanted to highlight that I thought was interesting, I sp- I mentioned this earlier when I was describing the game, but to expand on it, the timer on the game is a moon cycle calendar. So there's, you know, air quotes, 30 days of playtime. And the thing that advances the calendar isn't the number of turns that players have had. It's certain actions on the board, like howling at a lone wolf or dominating someone else's wolf or upgrading a den to a lair whenever a piece comes off the board, it goes up to the calendar and fills in one of the day slots and pushes the calendar towards the next scoring round. So 
it's entirely possible if all of us players at the table just took the move action over and over for some <laughs> weird reason because we didn't want to play the game. That it, hey, it don't just, yuck my yum, man. <laughs> it, would, it would just keep going on forever because the timer only happens when you take certain actions, right? Um, and in practice, what that means is that very small changes to how systems interact can dramatically shift both the game playtime and how players interact with that calendar. So one of the big challenges in development was trying to make sure that the game was fair within a system that was very hard to balance. So if we, if we go back to that language of fair versus balanced, um, I have seen, you know, one of the things that I've seen in terms of the early chatter of people who played it is there's a few questions like in BGG, hey, if I'm the fifth player, do I get less turns than everyone else sometimes? And because there's not a rigid turn structure, in, in effect, you might. You might get fewer turns. Um, and a lot of the development process was making sure that regardless of that fact, you were still able to have a fair play experience. Because um, what would happen is because the calendar is player driven, if you set the game up in a way where there's an even number of turns, what was happening in our testing is as soon as the calendar gets within one or two spaces of the end trigger, everyone gets into this big game of chicken of, I don't want to get it close enough that someone else is going to get, you know, I, I don't want to end the game because the three players after me are going to get another turn. Or if I'm the fifth player, I really want to end the game because then nobody else gets another turn. And even though it was fair from like a mathematical, it was balanced from a mathematical standpoint of we're all getting the same number of turns, it actually ruined the core experience and made the game feel unfair for most players. So instead, because there's those three scoring rounds, the game is actually pretty fair, regardless of the specific number of turns you have, because you've got three check-in points during the game where you can be the one to end a scoring round. So if you're that fifth player, even if you don't get that last turn at the end, you might have been the one to trigger the first two scoring rounds earlier in the game. And because the game is so hyper-competitive in terms of how the wolves are interacting in the scoring regions, being the one to make that trigger fire off is a huge deal. And since everyone has equal access to those at the three points during the game, um, it actually sort of solves itself in a weird way. And part of the development process was making sure that that still felt good and felt fair um, within the framework of the system. It's so cool too, Alex, talking about in the framework of the system, I think you're also alluding to the fact that you have this calendar that's such a good, like that's thematically rich. You're taking things off the board and it's literally advancing the day. But that calendar framework then is a constraint that you have to work within and around. You don't want to hurt that core of the design. So it, it sounds like a really interesting puzzle to try to solve. It, it, it absolutely is an interesting puzzle. And I, you know, I will say that I don't think, I think the game is doing so many unique and interesting things that there's always going to be things we could have done differently, right? Um, but I'm very happy with the way development shook out on on that game because I was able to keep the core of what the designers had created with not changing a ton of things and and sort of... I think when we signed it, we knew that it was doing something unique and something special. And sometimes being a developer is knowing when not to get in the way of that. Yeah. Um, you know, that calendar system, like you said, was very thematic. The way you're interacting with it is very interesting and different than the way a lot of games track their time. And I knew from the outset that that wasn't something I wanted to mess with too deeply. Yeah, really cool. It must be so stressful looking at uh, from a being a developer and a developer and then looking at like BGG threads after the game is in people's hands. Uh, I'm just thinking especially like, you know, 
games that like hit board game arena and then all of a sudden are like exposed to just like thousands of these like blind play tests and people are like oh how did they you know <laughs> this is clearly the dominant strategy you know and now we have all this data that shows it which is like you know imp- it's impossible i think yeah, in, in there's an axiom in, in the board game industry that states that you know your game will never get more testing than launch day right yeah. no matter how many times you test your game when it comes out you're talking about hundreds if not thousands of playthroughs so if something can go wrong, something will go wrong. And if you design a game where 5% of the time it completely breaks on turn two, that could be dozens, if not hundreds of people who have a terrible first experience with your game. Yeah. Um, so uh, reducing that and massaging that as much as possible is definitely a goal of development. I, I will say as far as the question of, you know, how, how does it feel when a game comes out and the BGG things and things like that, there's definitely pros and cons being a designer versus a developer. If you're a designer, you can kind of, if you know if somebody says something snarky about your game, you can kind of like hide behind the fact like, well, you know, like it looks a certain way and it was dev a certain way and whatever, whatever, because things out of my control, right? Uh-huh. So you have that little bit of insulation, even though it's your baby. As a developer, you know, I'm the last line of defense. So if, if a, a broken rule gets through somehow in a game that I worked on, you know, the buck stops here, right? I, I have to own that. Luckily, you know, fingers crossed that nothing comes up with the wolves, but luckily that hasn't happened yet for anything that I've worked on. But that would definitely be the fear. But I will say one of the great things about being a developer after having been a designer is when you're a designer, even if you're very prolific, you're probably having one or two games come out a year, realistically. As a developer, I get to see you know half a dozen to a dozen games that I worked on come out every year. I get to be at the show, see people buying them and enjoying them. And you know, as someone who set out on the path of being a designer to chase that warm, fuzzy feeling, um, it's really nice to get that over and over in my day job yeah no that's fantastic um and you know at the end of the day right games are patched you know it's not too big of a deal to just say oh yeah so sorry here's like the errata and we'll fix it in the second edition or, or send out a sticker to go on your board or, or whatever yeah that's where we're at with the wolves right now so we, the wolves uh, just for more context for the audience it launched at essen uh we had 300 copies there to sell i wish we'd brought more because we sold that in the first hour um <laughs> And it's going to hit uh, stores in the U.S. early November, uh, which might this podcast might already be out at that point. Maybe maybe I should frame it as like, go check your local game stores. Uh, <laughs> it, it'll um, be out. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you know, barring anything crazy with the Fulfillment Center, Wolves will be in stores in the U.S. and available first week in November, maybe second week in November. Um, and then once that happens, it'll be in more hands and more people will play it. So like all the hype that's come so far, like hitting number one on the BGG hotness and things like that, that was all off of the 300 copies at Essen. So I'm hoping that it'll like, you know, just keep, keep going like that. I, I, I think I can soft announce. I've already got the designers started on the expansion, which is very exciting. Hey, um, this is an exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, to your point about the rule book errata, it's, uh, yeah, that's that's what my whole last week has been is like making sure that we can press print on the second print run and catch, you know, like all those small little like grammar and, and sure. layout mistakes and things you like know, that. I've never sent out an email in my life that I don't just immediately see a glaring typo as soon as I can send. <laughs> the, so, the greatest feature <laughs> ever it. invented is that uh, the five second delay where you can unsend the email. I live off of that. Oh. So that was awesome, Alex. Thank you so much for sharing with us that sort of background history on the wolves from Pandasaurus Games coming out in 2022. Uh, I feel like that was 
I'm really excited to get a chance to try this game. And it's really exciting to see what the wider response is, given that that initial response at Essen has been so strong. But maybe as we're coming on to the last quarter of the show, we could pivot to another case study. And then this is really cool because we're going to have a live on the air development conversation that Alex and I would typically just have off the air, but we're going to have together because... An exciting thing that I've never done before in my life, I don't know if Alex has, but is I get to announce that I have a new game coming out to all of you. Uh, and this game is tentatively called Working Title End the Empire. It's coming out from Pandasaurus Games, and it is an asymmetric two-player card game in which one player plays as an oppressive empire who uses four core actions throughout the game to try to stop the rebels who use a different set of cards uh, that have four different suits and some different values. They're trying to achieve... Uh, these mission cards in five, three of five districts laid out on the table. So they're trying to get the criteria to be true. If they can win three of the five, they overthrow and end the empire. Uh, and really, it's a it's a game. It kind of plays. It, it's tough to describe. It's a little bit like a. It's kind of started as a stealth game and has now become this rebellion trying to obfuscate your goals and your objectives. There's a lot of face down cards that the empire won't know exactly what's happening and they have to deduce what the rebels might be up to and try to stop it before the rebels succeed at launching their plots. I am so incredibly excited to be working on this game with you. Uh, this, this is something that Brendan and I played for the first time, maybe four years ago at this point. Yeah, it's maybe been a while. Longer. It's gone through a few different themes. Um, Brendan and I used to live in the same city and we're in the same design group. So I've, I've seen this sort of throughout its process. And back when I was just a traveling designer, I took this game with me to a show to pitch it around for Brendan. And Pandasaurus looked at it then and really liked it, but they weren't in the business of doing two-player games at the time. And then totally organically, unrelated to me being the scout of Pandasaurus, as I was having conversations with them later on, my bosses mentioned, hey, whatever happened to that game? Because at that point, we had put out That Time You Killed Me, and it was doing well, and we were okay playing in that two-player-only space. And um, it just it very organically, I was like, oh, you want to see that game? Well, I still have that game. Let's take a look at that game. And uh, they signed it instantly, um, I, which I have, I have never seen a game stick with a publisher in that way um, in, in my time doing this. So I think that is a really, really cool um, indication of just how interesting and different and exciting this game is so super excited to be working with Brendan on this and I'm really excited to have you working on it Alex because I don't I think you I feel so fortunate because I think you know exactly what I'm hoping the game will be and you've already done so much to help me sort of craft and smooth the edges uh, and there's no surprise I think to listeners on the show that sometimes I bring a, a degree of organized chaos that can be a little bit sometimes I need corralling Jake is Jake is my shepherd. He keeps me on track. I think in game design, it happens a little bit similarly. So I'm excited, Alex, to have you as the shepherd there. And the core question, you know, there's these because it's asymmetric, the Empire's mechanism is pretty set. They have these four cards when you use two of them. They might not be cards, but four actions. When you first turn, you have a choice of four actions. You flip those over, then your other two actions are set. Uh, once you use those two, they all get refreshed, almost like a, a Matt Gert style player hand, then you pick it all up type system. But on the other side with the Rebels, you have a hand of cards. Uh, and right now, the development decision that Alex and I are really chewing on that maybe we can chew on here and now is this decision and if it should be a six card hand for the Rebels or a five card hand. Do you want to talk about, I've been talking a lot, Alex, maybe you can talk about yeah, how that affects the game and stuff. So 
as Brendan has, has started to say, the goal of the game for the Rebels is to have their hand of cards and play them. You put out two uh, face down cards and one face up card every time. And you're putting a indicator of where you want those cards to go at the intersection between two districts. So on the table in front of you, there's a line of five districts. So, you know, if we're using the kind of, you know, Hunger Games style framing that, you know, it kind of came out of, it's like the district one, district two, district three. And when you play those cards, the Empire has a chance to react. They could peek at a card, they could close a district, they could redirect a card to a different district, or they could kill a card. Those are the four actions. And when they do that, they take two of those, and like Brendan said, and then I play another three cards out, and then they only have access to those two. So the Empire's power oscillates turn to turn from having access to all four of their powers to having access to just two. So part of the puzzle is how can I intelligently and cleverly take my action so that I'm maximizing the value across both those turns. If you're the rebels, what you're trying to do is get those cards into the right place to trigger those public information victory conditions. So the empire knows exactly what the rebels need to do. The rebels know exactly what they need to do. And the core of the game is, can I do this before time runs out? In Brendan's game, time running out means the rebels have no cards left. So right now, because you're playing three cards out in a turn, the deck of cards is divisible by three, right? So, um, Brendan, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it 20, 24 cards? 24 cards. Yeah. 24 cards. So you have 24 cards, which, you know, is eight turns, basically eight rounds of the game. You start with a hand of five or six, which is the question we're going to talk about. You play three of those cards, you draw three back. So if you have five cards, you're playing three cards and then have two in your hand, and then you draw back up to five. If you have six cards, you have six, obviously play three, draw back up to six. So what Brendan and I have been trying to puzzle out lately is which of those makes more sense for the players to have. And it sounds like it wouldn't be a big deal, but in a game that is as tight as this game, you know, where the decision space is so kind of perfectly meticulously balanced um, for a two-player experience, it actually ends up being a big question. So with a six-player hand, when you play out three cards, you have basically a potential next turn already lined up. You have three cards ready to go. And at the end of the game, when you come into that last turn, when you play uh, your second to last turn, or sorry, your third to last turn, and draw those last three cards, you now have perfect information about what you're going to have in those last two turns. If you have a hand of five cards, then you're drawing uh, three cards off the table on your second to last, on your third to last turn, and then there's just one card left on the table because while the math works out for playing three each time, if you have a hand of five, if you start with five, you do have this one annoying card that's left on the table. And because you've already played the other 23 cards, you should know exactly what that card is. But of course, in practice, nobody actually memorizes the cards. So it's this very weird kind of like extra little thing on the table that you don't have information about. And then you're drawing one instead of three that time. So it's not, it's not pretty the way that the six player hand is. But with the six-player hand, you have more complexity in your decision space turn to turn. So what Brendan and I have been trying to puzzle out is, does that extra amount of analysis and decision space that might slow down the game a little bit earn its keep based on the cleanliness of the rules question? Or does the variability in terms of putting your players in different situations with the five-player, right? The, the benefit of a five-player, a five-card hand is that 
I'm forced as a player to make painful de- as the rebels to make painful decisions that I wouldn't often want to do. Uh, I can't play to specific play patterns based on specific goals all the time because I can't craft my hand as well. So from a play perspective, the game feels more varied because functionally the randomness is more varied. I get to solve different problems or more, more varied problems when I play, but that ending, just drawing one card from leaving one card on the table, that's functionally, it should be known information because I have all the other 23 cards functionally known, but not really. It's just so messy that does it justify it. And then two, maybe the complexity of a six card hand is good. Maybe we want the players to have the agency uh, to be able to set things up even more uh, in terms of pursuing goals and that that's needed for the game to have the strategic depth that it should. I don't know. I, I really like the game at both. And that's why this is such a, a tough decision. I think the other overlaid sort of impact to this question and decision is that when the rebel is making, because it's an asymmetric game, when the rebel's trying to decide their plans, the Empire player doesn't have as much to think about. They might be sorting out the puzzle on the table, uh, and there's lots to to chew on, but eventually you've chewed the puzzle that's there, so we don't want there to be too much downtime. And six cards increases that a little bit. So ultimately, yeah. we won't solve it here. But <laughs> I've yeah. got the answer for you guys. So no, What's the answer, Jake? I'm just kidding. Seven card hand. You <laughs> yeah. no, need a special man. rule at the end where you get to draw the extra card and then shuffle a couple back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have tried. Yeah. Okay. Go for it, Alex. I was just gonna say it, this is like such a, a classic, like interesting, interesting for us. Like maybe everyone else is like, money <laughs> people shut this off ten minutes it's, ago. Uh, no. it's, it's one of those things where it's it sounds like such a small nothing burger of a question. Like it's not even a rules question. We're not changing a rule. We're literally just changing the setup of are we drawing? You know, the rules still draw three each time, right? Like it's not it's not actually a different rule. It's just a setup question. But it has this weird knock-on effect of like a completely. I think Jake used the the butterfly effect phrase earlier. It's like it, it unfolds in this really weird, chaotic way that can like lead to very different play experiences from the smallest little question. It's, can I ask a question about? Yeah, please. The yeah. play test so far. So, do is it early? Too early in the process, or do you already have a sense of like what the win percentage is by side? Because what I'm struck by is that the rebels with six card hand is going to empower them up considerably to the five card hand based on what we've been talking about. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm curious to hear Alex's answer, but basically we've gone back and forth on, on this. And right now I feel that there it's, it's about 55, 45 rebels, right? So that, that does With impact five it cards some. or six cards with it. Honestly, it's about <laughs> the same either way, like need that, to keep collecting data. But yeah. one thing to keep in mind too, Jake, is that things that have changed, I've played tested this game for a long time, but like the objectives have changed. The rebel deck has changed slightly. Uh, the number of cards at one point I was testing seven. So there's like lots of little levers that have changed that I think have impacted how I think about it and have impacted the validity of my data and going back and looking at what the win percentage is in terms of what it is exactly right now. Yeah, I, I think weirdly it matters less than you might think, whether it's a five or six from a win percentage perspective. It's mostly just like a player feel and an experience and a rules upkeep question. I, we haven't done enough like broad testing at this point that I, I could confidently say that, but I don't feel like there's a dramatic difference in which side wins so far, at least based on how many cards you have in your hand. Yeah, that's so, interesting. 
Is there a way you're leaning, Alex, of like your your gut developer feeling? Uh, I I, th- I think I have historically leaned a little bit more towards six, and you've leaned a little more towards five. I think that that's true. I, yeah, I I like it from a cleanliness perspective. I like yeah. that your last turn of the game is drawing the last three cards out of your deck. Yeah. If there it's, was some magical way to have five cards in your hand and draw three on the last turn, if we could just break math for this game and this game only, that would be yeah. wonderful. It's so funny too, because Jake mentioned, right? Your brain goes to, I'll just throw in a cudgel. Okay, just on the last turn, draw draw all the cards remaining. Um, and that doesn't really work because that's so much less clean. It's another added rule to remember, the fee- which Jake, you said it facetiously. I'm not... Yeah, I'm yeah. not saying that. Yeah, yeah. I, we need I stand timers, Brandon. Yeah, yeah, stand timers. There you go. But what's interesting is five card, it's already kind of a cudgel in that because the math doesn't work, it's fighting the design from a component setup. But I love the the variability that it forces on to me. I like that even as a player, I like that when I'm the Rebels, I have a little bit less to think about in terms of going back to the how are we designing a product experience. Sometimes. I've played this game hundreds of times, right? And I even, there's so much to think about in a six-card hand. Sometimes I'm like, oh, there's just so much here. And I feel a little bit of relief when I have five cards because I have more confident confidence in my actions uh, because I think I can find the best decision more quickly. So from a player perspective, I want my players to feel confident when they're making decisions, right? Like part of playing a game is having fun and part of having fun is feeling like you're doing the right things at the right time. So that's partially yeah. why I like the five. Yeah, because it's 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 fuzzy math, right? Like it's not adding one more card doesn't add one sixth more decision space. It adds like yeah. 40% more decision space because it's all about the permutations. It's which three out of these five versus which three out of these six am I going to play? Yeah. Um, and oftentimes when you have five cards, there's maybe one or two that you definitely don't want to play right now. And it kind of makes your decision a little bit easier. And then it, like you're saying, at a six player counter really opens it up. So I feel like we could talk about it forever and not come to like a a, a perfect answer. Um, I think it's going to come down to testing. Like yes. I, I think yeah. we do A/B testing. We play, you know, one group of people with six, one group of people with five. Track player times, track rules, questions, and concerns, and make yeah. our decision based on the best option. But I think there's there's very clear pros and cons for both. So it's not an easy answer. And I think that's kind of true for a lot of development. There's a lot of design, and this is going to circle back all the way to the beginning of the difference between design and development. A lot of design is finding right answers. Like, this is better than that, right? Yeah. And they say, how do you know when your game is done and ready to pitch it? It's when you're changing things to change things, not changing things to make the game better, right? Well, this could be this or that, and they're both doing interesting different things. So development is, it's it's in a weird way, design is like the first 90% and development is like the last 90%. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's trying to puzzle out a lot of questions that don't have right answers. You know, uh, I was saying this about the wolves, about, you know, how the the, the different ways we could approach the the calendar and the and the player count thing. It's uh, both both had pros and cons. You know, I, I, I went with the decision that I think makes the game more interesting and better. And we're going to ultimately do the same thing for in the empire when we pick one way or the other. But there's not a wrong answer there, you know? Yeah. You It'll be an awesome game. The final 90% is the BGG threads after it's released. Yeah, the third 90%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, this was a really, really excellent case study, I think. Just it was fun for me to be a fly on the wall and, and listen to y'all kind of hash this out as classic development decision and 
problem and the factors that go into it. So I hope it was interesting for others as well. I kind of want to usher, Brendan, I'm super excited for you before we kind of go to our final takeaways from this episode. Congratulations on getting this game signed. Is there any sense of like when this might be in stores or is it still too early to say? I'm staring still, at Alex. <laughs> still, still too early to say. Um, I, as soon as Brendan, as soon as we know, Brendan can announce it on the podcast. Um, okay. I would say our current target is sometime in uh, late 2023 or early 2024. So that's cool. not, that's not awesome. set in stone yet, but you know, year and a half from now ish. One All of, right, we'll, we'll hold you to it. We didn't, even, we didn't even mention this in terms of describing how the game works, but one of the things that Brendan is working on right now that that uh, him and I are talking about from a development standpoint is we're trying to add a, a light kind of campaign mode to the game, so a little bit of narrative arc, sort of like how you have missions in the crew or a game like that. Not exactly, but something to give the game some more legs beyond just what the core experience is. Awesome. Sounds super Alex cool. Alex is saying well, get to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, excited yeah, for more updates. Come on, yeah. But let's kind of usher into the final last few minutes of this podcast and, and just sort of what are the key sort of takeaways, I guess, from this conversation? Uh, anything that we should like leave the people at home with about development? I guess for me, I'll start. I just think, you know, this is a really interesting insight into what development is that I haven't had before. I'm really eager to do this type of episode again. I think, you know, if we had other uh developers in the industry interested in coming on talking about some of the games and their uh challenges with it that's something i would love to do on this podcast um and yeah so i mean for me i'm kind of just seeing this as as the kickoff for for something interesting we could be doing with this podcast in the future how about y'all i'll go next so alex can have the final word but i think i was really struck as a takeaway by how much alex in describing the job of what a developer is is about asking the right questions and then testing the assumptions of the answers that come out, whether it's in conversation with the designer or in conversation with playtesters or just Alex in conversation with the game itself and looking at it and, you know, through through decisions, asking questions of the game and seeing how the game responds. Uh, I think that as a designer, you, you're asking the question of what's possible, what should exist. And as a developer, you're more asking the question of how will this best exist? And I think it's so awesome that game design and, and the board game industry overall is developed to the point where we have people whose job it is like Alex to take games and sort of interrogate them and say, how can you be your best and to help them get there? So thank you to Alex for the work that you do. It's so cool. And I want to yeah. hear your takeaways, Alex. What did you learn anything from yourself? Well, I, first of all, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, and I, I think it is also, it's a newer field in yeah. board game design, right? That, you know, a lot of companies uh, 10 years ago didn't probably have an on-staff developer in the same yeah. way, you know? Um, obviously bigger companies like a Hasbro do, but, you know, a lot of the hobby market that we talk about didn't. So it's it's finally getting, I think, more widespread recognition as a, as a important part of the process. You know, uh, BGG recently added developer credits to their, their listings, so that was nice. Um, you know, it, it's, I get to have my name on the back of the box, which is cool, right? Like it's a, I, I almost feel like an ownership of it from a design standpoint. Um, but I, I will say, so one of the big take, so to comment on your point about this, the kind of like the science of it, mm -hmm. right? Like a lot of what I do is empirical method, right? Like we yeah. are doing that kind of test a thing, test a thing, test an assumption, right? See what works. Um, board game design is always straddling that, that middle ground between art and science, Right. Sometimes 
and some, you know, it depends on the designer too. Some designers have a very science math based approach, right? And sometimes it's very, you know, a painting on a canvas or, or actually the, the two, the two ways that I like to describe it are you've got uh, sculptors uh, that work with clay or sculptors that work with stone, right? Like there's some designers who like build something up and add on bits. And there's some who kind of start with this, this stone and they can see the game in the core and they chisel off the edges. Right. Um, and they're, they're both valid approaches. I, I think I'm more of the, the chisel approach of like trying to, to take pieces off until the pretty part is left. Um, but that art versus science, a different way of framing that that comes up a lot in game discussions is thematic versus mechanic. And it's, it's not a one-to-one -one analogy, but people talk about thematic first design, theme first design, or mechanics first design. And designers will often have a preference. So I come up with a system and then I figure out a theme that fits over that. Or I come up with a theme and then I think about mechanics that fit over that. And the pairing of those two things, thematic mechanic pairings, is one of my huge like philosophical core tenets of what I focus on as a developer. So something like The Wolves was incredibly appealing because the mechanics that are going on in that game are incredibly thematic. The things you're doing, if you don't care about mechanics at all, you feel like you're a wolf pack. You feel the thematic nature of a wolf pack, right? Like that is, it is a core experience in that game is, is mechanics that pair well with the theme. Just hearing and, you describe the wolves, like I, I kept thinking to myself, like that's just classic wolf stuff, you know? Yeah, you're howling, stuff, you're building doing, out the den and all the great wolf stuff. Yeah, and that conversation, you know, historically has been thematics, mechanics, or both. And I think one of the big things that you're starting to hear, like a shift in terms of framing that development is at the forefront of, is experience, experiential design, experience first mm -hmm. design. Um, you have an experience that you want players to have when they sit down at the table and they open up your game and from art through components through everything like that they have a, a little journey you want to take them on and the theme and the mechanics are in support of that journey yeah that's fantastic and really appreciate your time all your insights i think the audience is gonna love this it's been really invaluable to me in understanding games but also just like kind of clarifying for this podcast because I think in a sense like our sort of decision focused lens was trying to get at something similar uh you know something that we haven't or I hadn't seen in a lot of uh board game podcasts right where they kind of take the frame of like here's the theme here's the mechanics you know here's the component quality and, and do a rating and we're sort of trying to like be like okay but like what does it feel like to play the game and kind of give people that with our deep dive reviews so i think in some sense like that sort of fits in a lot with with what you're saying and sort of this uh newer phenomenon in, in understanding and appreciating the great board games that we all are fortunate to have access to so many of and Alex, clearly we could just keep having this conversation. So we're going to have to have you back on the show. I'm already signing you up for, for returning. But if people want to find you in the meantime to learn, talk more with you, where could they find you? Sure. So I am on Twitter at, at AlexCutler89. Um, we'll see how things go with Mr. Musk taking charge. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, For now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if anyone wants to submit a game to Pandasaurus, uh, you can use my Pandasaurus email, which is alex at pandasaurusgames.com. So just my, my first name at pandasaurusgames.com. Uh, if you want to submit a game, if you are a designer and you have design questions, like I, I love just talking about game design. I will happily 
you know, chew on a problem that you're having and, and give you advice or feedback, even if you don't want to pitch the game yet, you know, or you don't think it's the right fit for Pandasaurus. I always like having that conversation and my door's always open. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'll say for pre-planners, the people who play games along with us to prepare for future episodes, know that we're going to be covering we're going to be covering uh, Rajas of the Ganges and Memoir Forty Four in our next upcoming games. You'll have a few weeks to prepare because next week will be another topical episode. Uh, Jake, do you want to to close us out with maybe where people can find Decision Space? Sure, you can find Decision Space on at our website at decisionspacepodcast.com. Uh, you can find links to all our other social media stuff uh, in the description of this podcast. And as always, just a big plug for our Discord community, a really active community, people playing games, thinking about games, designing games, and talking about games 24-7. Uh, we would love to have you be a part of that. Uh, you can find Alex in there as well. So um thanks everyone for listening we want to thank alex one more time and and thank hembry for our intro and outro music reach out until next week bye y'all